If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello folks and welcome to the Unsung Podcast. This is Mark Fraser, your host, and I'm joined here by a man who Diamanda Galas described as horrifically heterosexual, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chris Kuzak. Hello Christopher. Hi, I'm this podcast's Yoko Ono. <laughs> Do you know what? I actually had an idea that, remember, when we did the Beach Boys episodes, we had like a little musical tribute at the beginning, where you, Mark, and I did a little right, yeah. harmonising. I was going to say that we could maybe do that for this one, but well, didn't really want to put you on the spot. How about, how about we try a different thing then? We're going to do Diamanda Galas this week. Galas? Mm-hmm. I believe so. What's your favourite Diamanda Galas noise? I think I like the high-pitched wheel. The get, get a shot. <laughs> No, let me do that again. <laughs> I think we're both good. Yeah. Uh, di- different albums, clearly. But What's I, your favourite? I quite like the ones where she goes... <laughs> she does a bit of that. She and does. I'm pretty sure she did that thing where you... Uh, you know when you're trying to do Donald Duck? And you go... Yes, like she did does. that thing where she like grabs her cheek and goes... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking. People not, think I'm taking the piss. I, I, I think I know exactly what, what, what song you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's a banger, eh? <laughs> Dance floor the bit, fella. That's where she sounds like a murder of bats. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's me and Vicky. Mark is, we're trying to remember where Mark went, that's that's bad isn't it, I've been doing this podcast nearly five years, he's like I'm going on holiday, I'm like hey, alright, see you soon. Exactly. By the way that was a big reveal there, you hear with Vicky, because I thought that my impression of Mark at the beginning was really quite good. But I, the folk will be shocked, like, <laughs> I can't believe that was the Mark. Um, but no Mark, is Genoa maybe... Maybe Vienna, uh, maybe uh, Venice. One, one of the V's that I said. <laughs> I was thinking Barbados. <laughs> so 
<laughs> it's, it's Italy and going along to France as well. I you believe. said Switzerland. You said Geneva earlier on as well. I know, but I meant Genoa. I get mixed up. I learn words by the way they look. We're fairly sure <laughs> Mark is in them. the European Union somewhere. So I can fleet things like Genoa, Geneva, and Venice and Vienna. I suppose that Geneva wouldn't even count as that either, would it? Right, who cares where Mark is? We'll work it out, he'll get back and then he can tell us mm-hmm. Point is, we're here, we're doing the podcast We're not swanning off around the world We've got a job to do And that job is 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 a is a hefty job It's Diamanda Galas and the album The Singer There you go. Uh, before we get torn into that, uh, Unsung Record Club. I was down at the post office this morning sending stuff out, two days late as per. Uh, but there's some total belters, a couple of little goodies in there as well. If you're not a subscriber, you get three options. You get the basic one for four of your currency, where you get access to the group and you can influence the shows and you get all the bonus episodes. You get 15 year currency, where we send you digital music that's been curated and the money goes to the bands and the rest of the money goes to us and it helps keep everybody afloat. And then you got the Analog Record Club. Now, the Analog Record Club's a bigger subscription, but you get actual often limited edition vinyl through the door from the artists and the labels directly. Uh, it's curated to some extent. You can, you know, you can pick from categories and we'll send you stuff that we think you'll like. It's not just random nonsense. And with the Analog Club, if you want to try it for a couple of months, you can just dip in and dip out. You mm-hmm. can just up your Patreon, down your Patreon, change it each time based on that. Up your Patreon. <laughs> yeah, bass. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, with that out of the way, plenty to say about this. This is a... Yes. Uh, Wow, what a choice, Vicky. It's a belter, isn't it? Explain yourself. Ever since you started this podcast, I've always been like, she'd be the perfect person to do. Um, And I think it's just come along at the right time. I just, I absolutely, I think she's amazing. I haven't, I've maybe only really been into her for like the past maybe 12 years or so. I must have been aware of her because obviously in the mid-90s she had a wee bit of mainstream prominence, like tiny wee bit. You say only, that's that's quite a long time. I mean, you wouldn't expect a teenager to be diving into the <laughs> Galas albums between Spice Girl songs. Aye, I know, but like just given that she was on, like she was on like the Natural Born Killers soundtrack and stuff like that, yeah. which is stuff that I was definitely aware of a lot, a lot younger age. But um, I think actually personally what happened to me was I came out of a long term relationship and did that thing where I was like I'll reinvent myself by getting into loads of new music um, stuff that I've never listened to before (laughs) which I always see we do I had no idea no idea how I came across it but um, the first album that I listened to was this one, The Singer. And I know that's interesting. So this was your first point of was, contact. This was my first right. point of contact, yeah. I mean, I listened to that and the... What's it called? The Mask of the Red Death? Is that what yeah. our trilogy's called? I listened to that and some of those albums and things like The Ficciones. <laughs> 
but I didn't actually even know about the John Paul Jones thing, like, you know, our collaborations mm-hmm. with John Paul Jones and stuff. I didn't know about that too much later. Well, she's got a lot of stuff. We'll take a, a little uh, whistle-stop tour through yeah. some of the records later on, because... Mm-hmm. As much as you might be familiar with some, you try to do your due diligence and listen to as many as possible. But honestly, if you're not familiar with the Amanda Galas, once you hear the samples, you'll be like, "Holy shit!" They listen to like <laughs> how many of these records in a week? <laughs> it's 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 heavy going. It's not the kind of music you bang on when you're going down the gym. Um, not that I spend a lot of time in the gym, so that's that's fine. Uh, we'll do a little bit of background. So she was born in 1955 in San Diego. After spending her formative years as a classical and jazz pianist, uh, she came to prominence through avant-garde musical theatre. Her first public performance was in 1979. Uh, it was the premiere of Yugoslavian composer Vinko Klobokar's mm-hmm. opera Un jour comme un autre. Mm-hmm. Oh, a day like a, another. Un jour comme un autre. Uh, a, day, a day like another, yeah. yeah. Uh, which tells the story of a Turkish woman killed under torture. Uh, like Galas's subsequent work, the music is feral, punctuated with wordless ululations directly political um, in her formative years critics compared her techniques and kind of one woman dramas to German expressionist music drama mm-hmm. specifically Arnold Schoenberg's 1912 song cycle Piero Luner or his 1909 stage work Erwartung I'm sure you're familiar with all of these. This She's one. basically like the female musical version of Nick Cage. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, so this stuff's going to start to make more sense as we flesh it yeah. out. Yeah, and now, she's she's incredibly talented. I mean, she came obviously from a musical family, and even by the time she was like fourteen, she was playing in the San Diego S- Symphony. Um, I th- what I find in- interesting is that her parents were Greek immigrants, and um, her dad. I mean, that comes into her work a lot as the kind of like Anatolian. Presumably, she speaks Greek, right? But she also speaks French. She speaks Spanish. She speaks Italian. I think speaks English. And I think she pro- she performs in other languages as well. And just learns, yeah. you know, the, the lyrics or whatever. And uh, yeah, so her Greek background, it was interesting because I read that like her dad was a professor that like, led a choir and encouraged her like from a very young age to play the piano but didn't want her to sing because he thought that singing was a thing for prostitutes or whores. That's right, so they were quite conservative, weren't they? Very much so um, and she was very much discouraged from singing and she spoke in, like I saw an interview later on where she said it was like deeply like uncomfortable and difficult for her to sing in front of your dad it was really difficult for him to watch it mm-hmm. um, but that's interesting because the main body of her career is all about her voice I mean her piano playing is fantastic as well but it's definitely her voice that people come for Absolutely, it's, it's, yeah, it's what she's known for it's mm-hmm. the meme isn't it mm-hmm. I th- like there's a lot of different facets to her voice so one facet would be uh, it, it often takes on the sound uh, almost a, like a reed instrument like an, mm-hmm. a blown out reed instrument you know and she's a big fan of a lot of free jazz so mm. her voice she, she she sometimes describes the lines from clarinets and saxophones the way we'd describe a singing line. She's like, oh yeah, that really influenced my vocal take on this. And what she's describing is a brass instrument and, and, and actually it's not far off what you end up with. She also does a lot of glottal noises, fries, things like that that simulate metallic qualities as well. Mm-hmm. There's a saxophonist called Peter Brotsman who I think is name-checked fairly often in relation to her.
Um, and she obviously, I mean, she throws in a lot of other things as well, textural things, hisses, whispers, mm-hmm. growls. Um, uh, she's not an accents opera. as well. Accent, yeah, Accents. yeah. There's there's a little bit of sardonic humour and oh, kind of role playing in the songs. Uh, there's also there's a style singing referred to as bel canto, you know, yeah. beautiful singing, um, which has a sort of resonant fullness, and that that tends to be associated with growth and wellness. Well, Galas kind of goes against that, and and equally the the subject matter and the tones kind of deal with the sick and the shunned and mm. music it can be very dark um, I mean a lot of avant-garde vocalists go into the territory relating to psychosis and fervour and frenzy she does that a lot mm-hmm. um, part of that is that, I mean she's she's very strongly associated with the AIDS uh, awareness um, sure. and activism uh, her own brother died of AIDS in 1986 but she was actually already an activist mm-hmm. at that point I um, think that's really an interesting thing that she was performing and writing a lot about AIDS from the outset and during the AIDS epidemic that isn't a comfortable and easy thing to do you know that's actually a really brave thing mm. to do um, especially in the early 80s it also made her quite adversarial in, a, in her approach I mean she's caustic she's almost got a punk rock oh, she's a brave, stance she's like she really denounces a lot of things she's very outspoken you know, negative towards authority because of a lack, uh, because of perceived inaction on things like AIDS. I say perceived, I mean definite inaction mm-hmm. on things like AIDS. Uh, but also just generally, she's she's quite com- confrontational. She's quite curmudgeonly as well about other artists. We'll talk about some mm-hmm. of that later on. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect of her voice is, and I think this is interesting for me to really parse this a bit. It owes a debt to the style of uh, Sprechstimme or Sprechgesang. Excuse my German here, but uh, to give you some explanation here, the Austrian opera Vosek or Vozek uh, by Alban Berg is often cited as a good example of this in action. Um, and it's good to be able to kind of put a label to this style because it's hard to describe otherwise. It's extremely theatrical. It's somewhere between speaking and singing. And it does carry with it an unmistakable air of pretentiousness for your average listener. Um, it's weird and eccentric and it's quite hard to digest if you're uninitiated, which, to be honest, I am. I find it quite ugh, a little bit grating, but it's uh, it's not uncommon. Let's put it that way. Um and I've actually seen little bits of that opera as well and it's tough going but yeah you, you hear that style that drifts between spoken and sung and quite a narrative almost you know it, it nods to musicals but it's a bit more aggressive so with all of this to to, to uninitiated ears some of what she does just sounds frankly fucking mental you know <laughs> If you're coming at it cold and especially if you land at a particularly esoteric bit of her music, it'll just sound like nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's 
kind of important to push against that. She's, I mean, she's definitely classically trained in piano. She's a very, very, very gifted singer, albeit she uses that gift in, a, in an extremely unorthodox way. And she's exceptionally disciplined about it as well, about her voice. She really wants to do, she does the work where it, when it comes to her instruments, both of them. And, you know, from that point, I think when you were talking about Bel Canto, that she does have that kind of rigour, that, you know, artistic kind of mm-hmm. um, commitment. Um, so there's a really good article by a writer called Winston Cook Wilson, uh, f- of all places, uh, the Red Bull Music Academy. There's lots of great articles on that website. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll read a passage out shortly, but um, one of his observations uh, was, was pretty interesting on this subject. Like prisoners staging a jailbreak, the truly daring vocalist needs to know the system's ins and outs in order to subvert it. And exactly. I, re- I really mm-hmm. like that take. So yep. to, to defy convention, mm-hmm. you need to have a sense of convention and an ability to know what you could be doing in order to not only not do it, but to satirise or undermine or all it transcend it, it. Yeah. and slip castle or something into it. It's mm-hmm. that kind of similar thing. But I think that's that's an interesting phenomenon in music because there's a lot of charlatans, mm-hmm. apart from the, the actual charlatans, there's a lot of charlatans. <laughs> um, the Emperor's New Clothes effect sort of arises in the spaces in between that because... Mm. It is easy to project our own personal sense of insight onto somebody if we feel favourably towards them. Mm-hmm. You know, does someone know the conventions they're breaking or they or are they just, in fact, being a fucking idiot? Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of those in music. The two often do sound, especially if you come at them cold without a kind of wider context and body of work or frame of reference, they, they often sound quite similar. Um not to mention they can look similar, they can taste similar. There's people in all fields that are blaggers and there's people sure. in other fields who are doing quite unorthodox things but doing it from a place of great knowledge and ability. Um, so, mm-hmm. it, And it's easy to be a charlatan if the audience is on your side. If the, if the audience wills you to success, you can kind of get away with almost anything. You see that with a lot of kind of uh, flash-in-the-pan groups and bands and movements. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we could possibly suggest that Diamanda Glass is guilty of that, given the amazing amount of grounding in music and wider ability and, and learning she's got behind us. Totally, and also because the subject matter so personal to her and she's speaking about something that she's in the thick of. I read an interview where she said that she's tried to do other things, like I think she might have done a performance of like Jacques Braille music or something, and she said it just didn't work for her and it was horrible and she ended up resenting the audience because <laughs> she she didn't connect to it and she felt like it was pretentious and she felt like the audience were coming to visit her at a weak moment of her of her performance so that that was why she ended up resenting them and she only really does things that she has a personal connection to and that's why the AIDS thing was so big for her because she had obviously family members and lots of friends that were uh, killed by AIDS she herself contracted hepatitis C at some point and has lived with that throughout her life so because she was a heroin user uh and I think she was also like um, a prostitute at one point as well. So these the, the whole thing about must disease, have pleased her dad given uh, his premonition. Uh, yeah. Exactly the whole thing about disease and isolation and shame and and all of that kind of thing and um, revenge is a huge thing for her and her work as well and that's all very it's lived out in aspects of our life as well and I I don't like the word authentic right because like what does that even mean right but. Yeah, she's she's not a phony. Mm-hmm. 
Um, she's been asked about this before and when discussing inverted commas proper technique uh, and the importance of that musical education she paraphrased Ornette Coleman one of her early mm-hmm. idols but also collaborators uh, well you guys think that I'm playing all this free this or free that are you crazy I came out of the blues I learned the blues I learned a lot of other music very well as well and that is why I was able to take it this far not just because I picked up a horn and suddenly I thought I was a genius Ornette Coleman was someone who met with a lot of resistance because he would go so off the map mm-hmm. with his solos yeah. and you know <coughs> did you try to listen to some of that it's fucking and wild it yeah. the mm-hmm. improvisations are pretty out there I think he actually used to get into like confrontations at some of his shows and bars because people were just so affronted by mm-hmm. what, what was going on. Um, as I said, that article uh, by Winston Cook Wilson has some really good stuff in it. It's worth going to uh, looking out and reading. I'll, I'll read a little bit here because I think it sums things up quite well. The music of Diamanda Glass is a call to revolution, not just because of the activist intentions behind it, but because of her untold capabilities with the human voice. The San Diego-born, New York City-reared singer, also virtuoso pianist and composer, lingers in those seldom utilised liminal spaces halfway between blues singing and the sound of slow asphyxiation, halfway between shrieking and hitting the high note in a Puccini aria. Her versatility incorporates a vast knowledge of musical idioms from arcane eastern folk traditions to richly melismatic American soul. For Galas to traverse beyond the expected and stay there for a decades-long career requires a comprehensive understanding of vocal technique and tradition. Mm -hmm. Really hammering home Mm-hmm. the amount of ground in it there is behind what seems like fucking madness you know mm-hmm. um, he goes on even among other female avant-garde vocalists who favour extended techniques we'll talk about that in a second Meredith Monk Joan LaBarbera and Galassi's most clear predecessor operatically trained avant-garde vocalist and composer Cathy Berberian uh, the particular power of Diamanda's voice stands alone it boasts a hard one three and a half octave range several steps larger than that of Maria Callas Renee Fleming or any number of standard issue opera stars this versatility ensures Galas never sounds like a fixed property she shifts vocal personas almost moment to moment in her albums or stage work she's a gospel chorister Hellenic folk singer fire and brimstone preacher and human sine wave synthesizer all within just a few phrases she seeks to represent a range of human experience various shades of suffering usually rarely includes her own for political reasons mostly I think that's a great summation and it is a really good article if you want an insight from somebody who's obviously very very passionate about her work Mm -hmm. as well that really came across in the writing yeah it's a great article yeah Um, so as we mentioned the the activism and themes it crops up across the work Uh, we we spoke about AIDS Vina Cava the 1993 exploration of AIDS dementia and mental illness I mean, and, and that record to illustrate some of what he was talking about she speaks in tongues you know just babbling uh, before assuming this confused so they use the phrase here Blanche Dubois like southern drawl Blanche mm-hmm. Dubois from Streetcar Named Desire Streetcar Named Desire mm-hmm. um, she absorbs colloquial songs into her more abstract original compositions then caterwauling cadenzas evoking demonic possession unmentionable Tourette's outbursts and finally drinking songs uh, and you also mentioned she's known for performing stage dramatic works 
uh, particularly AIDS themed material like the yeah. Mask of the Res- Death trilogy and Plague Mass uh, of the late 80s. I read that like uh, some people that have been to some of these performances, I think it was Ven- Cava, were like having panic attacks in the audience and stuff like that and I know that when she's done stuff like the Shrai stuff as well, she had um, an album called Shrai um, Shrai X, Shrai X, which I think is Shrieks. Shrieks, of course it is. <laughs> Well, it's German for shriek. <laughs> um, well, she um, would do it in the dark, like wow. and see that having that sensory deprivation. Deprivation, yeah. yeah. Um, I can imagine how how you could induce a panic attack with that as well. Yeah, yeah as a nod to eccentricity, during the, the making of the film version of Shrey 27, which is a, a piece inspired by the subhuman conditions of an inhumane insane asylum on Staten Island, she'd asked that filmmaker uh, David Pepe to show close-ups of her voice mechanism as she was singing. Um, and a quote, illustrating what could be a scream, I began sending him x-rays and a Portuguese video of my vocal cords in phonation. The images in the film meld footage of her performance, the inner anatomy of the performance and clips of physical torment to form this really quite overwhelming collage. I think like that a really central part of her performance is that she gives the, the music a body like a bodily function yeah, yeah. and I think that's really pertinent when you think that most of her theme is about disease mm-hmm. and, and, and how the body becomes ravaged like you were saying about um, the, the age related dementia and vena cava and all of that kind of thing it's physically exhausting for her to do that it's physically exhausting to take it so there's it's a physical bodily she's bringing a 3D human element to it I think that's quite important there's there's a re- really interesting tie in there because I think you're really right and it, it strikes me that that is such a contrast to the likes of opera and I don't just mean the opera and the performance and the music itself, which is a physical thing, but I mean the presentation and also the environs of the opera. Uh, the opera is, you know, it's almost shorthand for something very formal and regimented and bejeweled and, and grandiose. You know, it's it's all gold-leafed things here and there and lights and red velvet and carpets and hallways and stairs and marble. It's sort of very ornate and almost designed to be slightly heavenly and remove you from the reality of humanity certainly there's a kind of class aspect to it so I think an observation I'd seen about Diamanda Galas is that she plays a a very interesting role in bridging the gap to opera in, in quite a critical way and I mean critical in a kind of criticism sense so as I say, professional opera singers on stage, majestic, very apart, uh, mythical. They, you know that whole thing about like drinking herbal tea and all that kind of. It's very formal. Diamanda Galas, I, I love this idea that she's broken down the distance between the opera singer and the audience. That she's an almost an ambassador in a foreign land for disenfranchised. You know, it's it's mm. it's not just the sick in that sense. It's not just like the AIDS working things, but in the broader sense of the population, punks, beatniks people from you know lower social tiers that can't generally afford to go to the opera there's a sense of irreverence there and there's a, there's a sense of her having the tools to engage in that world if she wanted but choosing instead to slightly undermine it or critique it and and make it feel uncomfortable make it feel uh, looked at make it feel you know under mm-hmm. the microscope. I, I just think that's a really fascinating aspect to her work. She seems to have othered herself from it 
mm-hmm. in a way. And I, I wonder how actual opera singers feel about her, you know? I don't know about that. I was just, it put me in mind actually of something that I read where she was actually talking about pop stars. And she said something like, pop stars that go out on stage drunk and sing a set and like don't really give a shit or whatever don't put any effort in is the most elitist thing that she can think of and that's why for her it's really important for her that she um, works really hard and is like totally shit hot when she goes on stage and that she she does her best I think yeah she she is bridging a gap but it's also she's she's not patronising to her audiences either I think um, she kind of expects them to fill in the gaps with things she doesn't mm-hmm. spoon feed um, I mean I don't for a second want to attempt to kind of put words in her mouth she's possibly got a great deal of admiration for a lot of them especially given the depth of their talent it just the way it, she manifests in culture you feel a wee bit like she's out there fighting for you mm-hmm. you know there's a, there seems to be a lack of deference and that's quite nice because definitely I mean even down to the fact that she doesn't just sing in English as mm-hmm. well um, I think that's a really big thing actually because I think that she found it hard to get bookings for her work at times because she was she was like singing in Greek or whatever and people were scared to book it because it wasn't in English and I think that's one point where I, I saw her making a comparison with opera singers she's like well nobody asks Maria Callas to sing in English English, do they? Why? Why is that? So, why are you so afraid of, mm-hmm. of a different language? Um, and she also has spoken about how when you refuse to learn other languages, you're cutting yourself off from emotions and uh, experiences and things that you could feel that you wouldn't otherwise mm-hmm. feel. So it's. I think yeah, she's just she's not the status quo, and she's reeling against the status quo. Yeah. I and mean, I think the, that's, that's a huge a huge thing. The, the language aspect also defies the hierarchy of English as well in the sense that you know it's not just a class thing you're bringing in other cultures and making that music accessible negating that sort of sense that you have to sing in English to be to be worthwhile to them as well in their minds it's more inclusive Mm -hmm. um so it'd be kind of good to look at some of the people that have influenced her Mm. Given what she does, you're like, where is she getting these ideas from? We've, we've kind of made some nods to it. Yeah. One name that came up earlier on, which I think is important to mention, is Kathy Barbarian. I, I'm, I think that's how it's pronounced, Barbarian, Barbarian, whatever. Um, really interesting person. Classically trained avant-garde performer and composer who worked with all sorts of legends and experimental music in the 20th century. She actually died in Italy where she was based in 1983, the day before she was due to perform a version of the International in the style of Marilyn Monroe for Italian TV to mark the centennial of Karl Marx's death. That's the kind of eccentric stuff she was known for. Um, She she wrote a fair bit in her article La Nuova Vocalita nell'Opera Contemporanea, The New Vocality in Contemporary Music from 1966. Uh, Barbarian outlines a new role for vocal performance in contemporary music uh, Barbarian championed the concept and descriptions of the new vocality which became a major part of her philosophy of performance and legacy as an artist uh, in contrast to traditional opera practice where singers are to produce beautiful tones and nothing else the new vocality employed the voice which has an endless range of vocal styles at its disposal embracing the history of music as well as aspects of sound itself so 
what this is getting at is that this woman was key in breaking down some of the snobbery around the other noises the human voice could make whilst in, in, in the context of high art. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the new vocality is much more than extended vocal techniques. That's a phrase that came up earlier on. And that's that sums up, especially these women, but men as well, who were pushing the boundaries of what became accepted vocal stylings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and women were right at the forefront of that movement. So extended vocal techniques which are based on the inventory of more or less unedited vocal effects which the composer may devise and the singer regurgitates. Rather, the singer should become the composer of the live performance and use the voice in all aspects of the vocal process, a process which can be integrated as flexibly as the lines and expressions on a face. This philosophy of vocal performance can be seen as fundamental to the development of vocal performance art, as well as to the work of Meredith Monk, Laurie Anderson, and of course, Diamanda Galas, uh, and countless other vocal performers and composers. So, Cathy Barbarian was really eccentric. And I had had a lasting impact uh, Mm. on the the arsenal that a vocalist had at their disposal and also how the vocalists that chose to take that on were perceived. Um, Diamanda Galas actually helped us here as well because she did an interview with The Quietus not so long ago, I think. I'm I'm guessing, I think it was about five years. And in that article, she picked out a few of her favourite albums and the albums that were most influential on her. I'll pick a couple of them here because they were quite interesting. She picked Miles Davis on the corner. One that David's spoken about in past episodes, a really interesting one by him. She picked out a woman called Annette Peacock Mm. and I Am The One Mm -hmm. was the album, I think from 1972. Really avant-garde, very jazzy. Are you familiar with her? Yeah, I mean, she's our seventies stuff is our eighties stuff is much more avant-garde. I would say. Is it? It's difficult to get it because she. I think she actually had to like release it herself. So like it's not in streaming or anything. It's quite hard to get eighty stuff. But yeah, our seventy stuff I'd say is a bit more accessible. But That's, I mean, I found it quite avant-garde. I mean, the vocal actually reminded me a little bit of some of the stuff that's used in Deerhoof sometimes. Some of the little vocal effects, especially the cutesy kind of soft stuff. I can't think what Deerhoof sound like. To well, be honest, there you go. Um, another one she picked was Max Roach and the record We Insist. Uh, this is like this really brilliantly delivered, uh, I'm going to say protest jazz with a female vocal in it, a, a woman called Abby Lincoln. Uh, Galas has spoken about this and said how great a singer Abby Lincoln was, but in this record, one of the things that she loved the most was that there are actual frenzied screams mm. from Lincoln. And she's like, as somebody who can sing, it's really hard to scream, to let your voice free like that, to the total abandon that goes with a scream. <laughs>
not a howl, not a, a shout, but a scream. There's something mm. very cathartic, but also very counterintuitive, I think, for anybody that has a real voice. Uh, so that is a really interesting record. I had to listen to it. Uh, she picked out Doris Day's Love Me mm. or Leave Me. That someone is you I've heard it, but I've seen it in other interviews um, being quite an admirer yeah, of Doris she, Day, she, she Legato Best Legato in the business, mm-hmm. Legato being this sort of smooth transition from note to notes rather than them being quite, uh, like having that punctuation effect. Uh, she picked out Arthur Rubinstein, uh, the pianist Somebody again, she she praised his legato ability, like a cello, the way mm. the notes were able to blend. Uh, I think she'd said something like, I can't listen to him because it makes me cry. Uh, she picked out a guy called Sviatoslav Richter. Pianist to it, I guess, if you're into piano, uh, you're probably familiar with that. But he plays, you'll find him online playing a lot of things like Chopin. But see, when he wanted to, he could be really ferocious, had this really staccato gunfire technique, a lot of dynamics. And the album that she uh, raised, Scriabin Sonatas, I think it was, in particular, uh, showcases that stuff. Something that's really brutal. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last one that I'll mention, because I thought it was really interesting, is by Pierre Henri. Any relation to anyone Uncle you know? Uncle Peter. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, an album called, uh, well, I'm guessing it's Variation pour un porc et un soupir. Care to translate? Can I see what how it looks like? Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, variations for a door and a sigh. Une or, porte. <laughs> I'm getting murdered here. And so, as you would expect, from the title, it's literally what the title says. So, the album is comprised of vocal size and a creaking slash slamming door. For doors. It's right. totally experimental. Mm-hmm. Some people consider it actually the invention of music concrete. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? That's fine. <laughs> I think it might be music concrete, but that's all right. Okay. Um, <laughs> honestly, some some of this record sounds a bit like robots farting. Um, <laughs> it's really. I, I'll cut I, it. I, I thought you would like that though. <laughs> um, it's it's really interesting, especially when you know what was used to make it. Mm-hmm. But it's music in a very artistic sense. You know, yes. it's it's it's. Hard to nod along to it. Um, interestingly enough, though, talking about robots farting, a Pierre Henri track called Psych Rock was actually reworked into the Futurama theme. Mm. And there's an entire Futurama episode about robots farting causing global warming. 
Oh you my go. God, no there joke. you go. But yeah, uh, and in terms of some of the other names that have popped up, who I can't really tell if they were an influence on her, if she was an influence on them, they were kind of, they were peers. Uh, Joan La Barbara, uh, born in Philadelphia, a little bit older than Amanda Glass, I think, is she? Still in action and a pioneer in expanded vocal technique. By the way, I never mentioned, but Kathy Barbarian had done a, a Beatles cover that got her quite a lot of attention. There's no, there's no Beatles covers with Joan La Barbara. Um, it, she she talks about the voice as raw sonic material, and as such, some of her material sounds. It's going to sound absolutely deranged to your average punter. Mm-hmm. Um, she looks at timbers within a single vocal tone, so she'll literally just sing a tone and emphasise different parts of the wave, you know, the highs and the lows and stuff. Um, she does a lot of breath-related modulation, circular breathing, yammering. Um, sounds very academic. Whis- yeah, whispering in the manner of somebody having a religious fervour. I mean, it's really, really esoteric out there stuff. Um, mm. She also clearly explores the techniques and traditions of a lot of very ancient peoples, you know, throat singing, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating, but it's totally barmy. Mm-hmm. Oh, honestly, I watched a full video on YouTube today of someone doing the throat singing, the overtone, mm-hmm. I think it's called, overtonal singing, where basically... Basically, it does. It sounds like you're one person doing a harmony with yourself. Oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's actually incredible stuff. Amazing, um, so interesting. There's a, there's a kind of rapper, rapper vocalist called uh, Razel. I think we spoke about him recently, who did a record with Mike Patton, and he beatboxes with overtones. So he's doing like two and three parts with his voice, different parts of his voice, including like the drum and the note and the harmony note. It's amazing. Another name was Meredith Monk from New York City, still practicing actually. Mm-hmm. She does extended vocal technique. Yep. Um, Remember the bit? There's a bit in the Big Lebowski where Maud Lebowski is hanging from a ceiling and she she kind of glides by and she's doing a painting. Do you know yeah, what I'm yeah, talking exactly, about? Yeah. And in the background, it's Meredith, Meredith Monk. Monk it's like right. the breathing, like. <laughs> <laughs> So she's got a sort of quasi-residency at a place in Minneapolis. Um, That's let her do a whole load of plays and exhibitions Mm -hmm. and stuff. She pioneered the explorations of the human voice solo before eventually forming a collective and creating these far bigger, more elaborate works that she Mm. does now. As you say, she's in the Big Lebowski and she was also formally decorated by Barack Obama for contributions to the arts. Mm. Um... Influences on by Diamanda Galas. I think this is an interesting one. The the big one that came up, and I mentioned it as soon as you you let me hear this, was PJ Harvey. Ah, you said that. Um, yeah. PJ Harvey from her third and fourth albums is his desire and to bring you my love. Mm-hmm. There's, there's songs in both of them So I would say Joy, bold baritone crassness has has a lot of that aye, in it. Um, aye, aye. No girl so sweet as well.
high shrieks in that they're really like the really fucking confrontational high shrieks she goes mm-hmm. into uh, and then on to bring you my love you've meet z monster again really harsh baritone and also long snake moan i think that delivery yeah. and the dancer Yep. dancer as well absolutely definitely. of course yeah so these songs have a definite print of diamanda glass on them um tom waits is one mm-hmm. and whilst tom waits has been about a long time before diamanda glass started her career tom waits we've as we've spoken about in the episode changed his direction a lot mm-hmm. and went less from jazz albeit it was quite unconventional but when he got into the meal variation stuff, the vocal stuff got right off the charts. It became the, the real focus of the albums in a lot of cases. Definitely. Cer- certainly some of the songs. And so I think there's a bit of give and take with him. You're the head, on the spear. You're the nail on the cross. You're the fly in my beer. You're the key that got lost. You're the letter from Jesus on the bathroom wall. I suspect she really admires his work But I suspect he really admires her too Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was a back and forth Um, You can really hear her influence On Mike Patton Oh yeah Right, you really can And she despises him does she? Yeah, uh, she's quoted as saying, "He sucks. He has no technique, and he is not a man, but a punk." <laughs> um, I mean, Patton's more extreme stuff in Bungle, uh, Mister Bungle, and Phantomass definitely owes her a fair bit. Yeah. And also, he did a lot of stuff with John Zorn, and it's the kind of stuff you could have imagined her doing too. Um, they have travelled similar paths at times mm-hmm. but I think it, notably he does it from this quite commercial starting point that's maybe not entirely fair because he was doing Mr Bungle really early on mm-hmm. but he rose to prominence via Faith No More and some quite charty commercial stuff and then he used that platform to sort of bring this far more esoteric music to people's attentions I think Mike Patton's done an awful lot of good with some of the really interesting music that he's used his status to promote Um, she doesn't seem as keen on that Um, she's always been making outsider art really to some extent Mm -hmm. Um, another person she doesn't like very much Yoko Ono no she doesn't I think because Yoko Ono kind of took credit for Diamanda Glass like said there would be no Diamanda Glass without Yoko Ono The training that Diamanda Glass has got, right, it's not the fucking same as Yoko Ono sitting in a Hessian bag screaming. <laughs> right? It's just not the same thing. Yeah, we've actually spoken a bit about how Yoko Ono takes a lot of shit. But I yeah, guess and, and, and I think I've stuck up for her, actually. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I would, but come on now, Yoko. Yeah, that is a bridge too far. Come on it? now. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, sorry, I'm not even, just they're incomparable. You can't even, <laughs> st- don't even go there, do you know what I mean? It's not, no. Yeah, she's, Diamanda's quite 
quoted as saying this woman can't sing She's had, she had a few vocal sounds but you have to have 400 sounds at your command if you're going to go to Mars whatever that means there's loads Anoni as well you mm-hmm. know um, their voice definitely I think takes a lot from Diamanda Glass in the in the countryside under the streets suck the suck the and I think just even performatively people in the mainstream have like broken wee bits off of her I even think, you know, when Kurt Cobain was on the telly that time doing the performance on Top of the Pops and he didn't sing Smells Like Teen Spirit properly and he was doing it that irreverent voice thing, that's kind of like she actually does versions of that thing within her own music where she's yeah. like, she's kind of ripping the piss a wee bit, do you know what I mean? There's like, I think a lot of people admired her, obviously no one touched her in terms of her chops in terms of her ability, in terms of her vast knowledge and how she synthesised her, her knowledge and her skill and her craft and all of that, I mean, people just broke bits off of her because it, she was slightly cool and yeah. subversive and you Oft, know often imitated never equaled it, it, that, well that's it exactly yeah. by the way see what well, we're talking about those connections did she go out with Henry Rollins so I, I, I found this on the internet but I couldn't really substantiate it properly but that's a, that is a rumour that seems to be online that's a power couple eh? aye <laughs> fucking I terrifying mean, couple <laughs> certainly I wonder how that ended <laughs> Well, we're sure you agree there's quite a lot to digest there, so I think we'll take a break, and Diamanda's certainly a big enough character to merit two episodes. Join us again next week when we'll have a quick tour through some of our back catalogue, and then we'll get dug into the singer Vicky's choice of an album. Maybe we'll even find out who Mark's getting on in Botswana. Until then, take care. See ya. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.